0: This is The One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at The One Thing Team. In the last episode, you got to hear a keynote that I gave to a bunch of our coaches on how they can be asking questions that help people boost their productivity. If you missed that episode, please go back and listen to it. We've gotten an overwhelming amount of positive feedback on that one. Go listen to episode 74. This episode is from our One Thing webinar series. Every month, we try to feature a best-selling author, somebody whose book we love that we want to bring to you. This last month, we featured Cal Newport, the author of Deep Work. We know many of you are huge fans of Deep Work. This was an opportunity for us to spend some time with Cal to learn how we can be strengthening our focus muscle. He said something brilliant. He said, the one thing is about what you work on. Deep work is about how you work. This is an incredible resource. I know you guys will love it. If you would like to see who we have coming up, you can go to the one thing.com slash webinar. That's with the number one in the URL, the one thing.com slash webinar. And you can see all of our past guests and then see the one that we have coming up for our next month. With that, let's get into my conversation with Cal Newport of deep work.
2: Welcome to our training today on the rules for focused success in a distracted world. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing Team. We are very excited today to be here with author of Deep Work, Cal Newport. This is a book that right up there uh, that Jay has loved. And I just pulled that out of Jay's office. He's got the stack of books that he likes to keep. And then he's even got a stack of books that he gives away as gifts because they're that impactful. And he's got two copies, one in his that he's read. And then he's got a copy that he gives out to people, which speaks very, very highly of the book. So we're very excited to go through that with you all today. Um, Real quick, I'm going to ask that you engage with us. You are going to get a lot more out of our time together if you engage with us in the questions box. So, right now, please share with us where you are joining us from. That way we can see how far this is reaching. So, right in there, just go ahead and say Austin, Texas, and let us know. That way we can kick this thing right off. Ireland, nice. New York City, Oakland, California. Yep, it is Marissa. Told you. Marissa, hi. Boston, Martina, nice. Tampa. Gwen, hopefully uh, everything is going to be okay with the the hurricane coming your way. So thoughts and prayers coming out to everybody in Florida. Um, San Diego. Jose's in San Diego, my hometown. Very nice. All right, folks. Well, let's dive into the training. We're talking about the rules for success in a distracted world. Every single day, you and I wake up and we have a challenge that we face. We call this a challenge of life. There's all that you could know. The challenge is you can't know it all because life is too complex. Uh, there's all that you could have, but you can't have it all because life offers too much. And then there's all you could do. The challenge there is you can't do it all because time's too limited. And it's this complexity, this, over abu- this abundance, this, this scarcity of time that means that we can't know it all, we can't have it all, and we can't do it all. We have to choose what we want to know, what we want to have, and what we want to do. The question for you right now is, what's your method? What model are you following to make sure that you make the best choices every single day? This is what the one thing is all about. Back in the '90s, a group broke the world record record for domino falls. They lined up over 4.4 million dominoes, and if you're like me, who played dominoes as a kid, you know you line them all up, you flick one, and they all knock down, and it's really exciting. Then you go have some jello and a cupcake. This team knocked over 4.4 million dominoes. As a result, just one little flick unleashed so much energy that it would take me or Cal, that much energy you need to do 545 pushups. The moral of the story is when you do one thing, the right thing, it topples over many things. And research has also proven that when you do one thing, it also can knock over bigger things. So We found that if you were to knock over a two-inch domino, by the 18th domino, it would be able to knock over a structure as tall as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. By the 23rd domino, it could knock over the Eiffel Tower. By the 31st domino, that single two-inch domino, 31 dominoes in, would loom 3,000 feet above Mount Everest. And by just the 57th domino, it would reach almost from the Earth to the moon. The question for you is, what is that one activity? That power activity, that if you just knocked that thing down every single day to the point where it became a habit, it would unleash this geometric progression, this extraordinary results in your life. That's what the one thing is about. And that's why when Cal Newport said, "Hey, the one thing is really about what do you work on? What do you focus on? You focus on the one thing. Deep work is about how you work. So when you go into your time blocks, when you get clarity on the fact that this is my priority for today, and now is the time that I will get it done, how do you ensure that you mentally have the focus, a system, a model to follow, so that you are deeply immersed in that most important work and your productivity goes through the roof? So with that, I would love to welcome you all uh, to meet Mr. Cal Newport. So where are you joining us from, Cal?
3: I'm on the uh, campus of Georgetown University in Washington,
2: D.C. at the moment. Very nice. He's good looking and he has smart people. This is is very exciting. So what inspired you to write Deep Work to begin with? You know, it really came out of the book I had written
3: before it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this book before called, uh, you see it on the shelf, The Orange One, So Good They Can't Ignore You, which was actually about career stuff. It was about this question, how do people end up loving what they do for a living. So I went out there and I studied people of what they do for a living. I dived into the research. And one of the answers that that book gives is people who end up passionate about their work, it's not that they start with a clear pre-existing passion. They cultivate that passion over time, usually by first becoming very good at a skill that's very valuable. So I published this book and I said, this was sort of the key for ending up loving your work. And so people said, well, how do you end up becoming really good and mastering things that are rare and valuable. And the answer to that really was deep work. That's the superpower that gets you towards learning things very quickly, producing things at elite level.
2: So, and this is where I was just talking to Jay about this. When we talk about developing the right skills is very aligned with what we've learned from Gary Keller. He shared recently that the whole purpose of a goal is to be appropriate in the moment. To have some vision of where you want to be in the future, what you want to accomplish, so that you can look back to this moment right now and say, How can I be absolutely appropriate? What are the habits or skills that I need to develop right now so that that someday dream actually becomes a reality? So, Cal, what is exactly deep work and how do we begin to leverage that in our life?
3: Yeah, so deep work is, a, is an activity. Uh, it's an activity I define as where you're giving. A focused, unbroken, undistracted attention on a cognitively demanding task for a non-trivial amount of time. So deep work is really a verb. It's when you are focusing very intensely on something hard and it's getting your full attention. So it's a very simple concept on which very large and complicated results can be built.
2: I'm hearing you say that. I'm going, okay, that makes sense. It's simple, simple in theory. And then I'm going, walking through the steps of how would I actually implement and realizing that sounds really, really hard to do. We know distractions are everywhere, technology, other people, meetings. How how do you silence the distractions? What does that look like in your life?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is the key question and the key observation. So deep work is one of these things that when you first hear it, you think, okay, it's a habit. It's like flossing my teeth. I know how to concentrate. I'm just not doing enough of it. I should try to make some more time to do it. The reality is, if you actually study this, this topic, is that deep work is much more like a skill, like mm. playing the guitar. It's something If you don't practice, if I give you a guitar and you've never played a guitar before, you're not going to be very good at it, right? It's <laughs> something that absolutely requires practice. Well, it's the same thing with uh, intense, unbroken concentration. It's something that you actually have to practice if you expect to be good at. So actually, it's a very simple thing that can be really hard to get good at. And I I just want to start with that foundation because a lot of people get that wrong and it causes problems. So if you think about deep concentration, deep work as a habit that you already know how to do and just need to make more time for, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come away from this webinar. You're going to, maybe you're, you're sold on the idea that you should be doing more deep work. You're going, to, you're going to put aside some time. You're going to go to some cave to do your deep thinking. And if you haven't been practicing, it's going to be very uncomfortable. It's going to be very difficult, and not much is going to be produced, just like you pick up a guitar you've never played before. It's going to sound terrible. If you think deep work is just a habit, then you come away from that experience thinking, I must not be a deep work person. Concentration is not for me. It's 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 not in my genes. I guess I should just give up. So I do like laying that foundation early on. It's an incredibly powerful skill, but it's one that you really have to fight to
2: develop. What did that look like for you? You you stumble upon this idea. I assume you started living it. What was your initial experience with it?
3: Well, I was exposed to deep work at a at a much earlier age because I, I was in one of the rare professions in which people still talk about deep work as a tier one skill, something that they're proud of and something they cultivate. So I'm a theoretical computer scientist. That means I, I solve equations and prove theorems for a living. So when I was a graduate student, I was doing my training at the theory group at MIT, which is one of these sort of hallowed places in the world of theoretical thinking where people literally will sit there and stare at a whiteboard all day long. You can, you can walk in the morning and there will be, you know, someone staring at a whiteboard. You go out to lunch, you come back, same person staring at the whiteboard. Yeah, just like that, except for usually a little more full. <laughs> a little more full. That's where uh, my mind is today. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, th- and, and if they were famous, if they were famous enough, it would be that, except for they'd also have a crowd of people standing behind them, watching them stare at the whiteboard. Uh, the point being, it was in one of these these last places. people still think about the ability to concentrate as one of the key skills you have. Mm. The big breakthrough for me was making this leap after I published So Good They Can't Ignore You, that deep work is not some sort of esoteric monastic skill that's relevant mainly to weird theoreticians who sit around staring at whiteboards. The leap that I made was, okay, this skill is actually relevant to lots and lots of different jobs in which you use your brain to make a living. And so I'd always had deep work as something that I, I prioritized in my life. Once I started working on this book, however, I got much more systematic about about what that means. Uh, so if you look at my life, for example, um, I'm pretty careful about a lot of things. So I have no social media accounts. I have my phone with me sometimes. It's rare, it's not a of course I always have this with me type of thing. Uh, I don't web surf. You you can't put me on a computer and say entertain yourself on the web. I don't know where to go. It's just it's just not a habit, not a habit that I'm in uh i'm i'm very bad at email <laughs> i will go long periods of time sometimes multiple days without seeing my email inbox is not a priority so you know someone's life who's really dedicated to deep work that's what it looks like
1: mhm
2: i'm taking what your situation has been and now i'm imagining being in the position of the people who are either with us live or the people who are listening to this on the one thing podcast later And I'm asking, all right, I'm in this world where I'm expected to be in my email. Uh, I need to be on social media. I support a lot of people. I need to respond to customers. I I need to be connected. What is the story that they're telling themselves that's justifying their inaction?
3: Part of it is a a lack of proper vocabulary. So I always say one of the most important contributions of my book is just the title. Because... (laughs) Oh, I wish I'd known that before I spent all the time writing the pages in between. But, but that's actually, that's like 50% of the value. And, and the reason is as follows. Uh, the terminology we have around work is important. Because a lot of what's happening now in, in the sort of the age of what I call digital knowledge work, the age where people are, are working with their brains and they have digital networks connecting them, is that if you just think about work as work, right? either I'm working or I'm not, or I'm not working, This can lead to a lot of maladapted behavior, where if all work is just equal, then you you, you never want to be less connected. You always want to be busy. You always want to be doing something. To always be doing something seems like I'm doing more work. Working hard is good. Nose to the grindstone. We've always had that idea, that work ethic of hard work is good. Nose to the grindstone is good. But what digital networks enabled is all of these new ways to sort of be busy. To try to try to try to satisfy this definition of "I'm working really hard," and the key thing that I think deep work does is it says, "Well, there's different types of work. There's deep work, and there's other types of work. Let's, let's just call shallow work just to play with antonyms here." Deep work. This is typically when you're concentrating very intensely. This is when you're you're putting your skills, you're putting your skills, you're applying your skills at the highest level. You're producing the the real value things, the things that you're trained for, the the, the highest value things you can produce is when you're building skills. It's, It's the stuff that moves the needle. And then there's everything else. The emails, the meetings, the social media posts, the sort of logistics, the background uh, grist that has to go through the mill to help keep the lights on, if I can mix the metaphors here. So you have the shallow work and the deep work. Once you can actually make that distinction, you see your work life in a completely different way. You say, oh, I get it. Deep work is what's going to get me promoted, right? Deep work is what's going to move the needle. Shallow work is what's going to maybe prevent me from getting fired or what's going to keep my you know company from not missing bankroll or payroll next week or something like that. Both are important, but I, I now see shallow work as a little bit of a necessary evil or at least you know, a little bit of a tedious thing that you're trying to minimize and, and have not eat up too much of your life. And then the deep work is what really
2: matters, I'll, I'll share an example, and this is, ha, has been a big moment of clarity for people who have been in our Living Your One Thing community. We know that one of the greatest lies of success is the lie that everything matters equally, like how I was just talking about. It's, it's just not true. There are certain – there's a handful of things that will produce the disproportionate majority of your results. 80-20 rule, right? And when you get clear, like on our 411, what's your handful, just handful of big rocks are for the week – If I just did this and mailed it in the rest of the week, that's it. It would be one of the best weeks of my professional career. And if I were to actually tally up how much time would be required for me to knock that out, I already did it. It's 12 hours. This is not saying you don't check email. You don't attend meetings. You don't return customers calls. It's about getting clear on what the most important priorities in your life are establishing time blocks, time that you schedule with yourself to do them. And when you get to that time block, how do you develop the skill of doing deep work? So you are all in on those most important priorities. And then if you want to sip a margarita on the beach and check email and swipe right on Tinder, go for it, baby. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, especially the swipe right with the margarita. Is that, <laughs> is that, is that what you do in this community? <laughs> that That was not... Best I mean, the It just came out. I'm going with it. <laughs>
2: going with no, but, it. It's but, out there. But,
3: but it is absolutely right. Like shallow work is not evil. Shallow work is not worthless. It's, it's what keeps the lights on. It's, it's the logistics. It's the putting the grease on the wheels of the train to make sure that they don't seize up. But it's not what's going to move the needle. And so that's always the expression I tell people is if you work for someone else, shallow work is what stops you from getting fired. Deep work is what gets you promoted. If you run your own company. Shallow work is what helps you not go bankrupt next week. Deep work is what gets you to the 10x growth or the, the mm-hmm. major acquisition down the line. And so the way to think about it, the way I think about it is the key is having the concentrated deep work blocks where you're really trying to move the needle. And then you do your best to handle the shallow stuff in the time that remains. And maybe if you're doing it at 80% capacity, that's kind of fine. Yeah, you know, like, I, I do that well enough that I'm not going to get chased out of my office with pitchforks. But I'm never really proud of that. And I don't equate that with success or advance or even a good work ethic.
2: Right. And, and I think there's a common thing theme among people who are in this community, which is um, we're after extraordinary results. We're the top of the class. We're not the middle of the class. We're not the bottom of the class. We're not looking for good. We're not looking for great. We're looking for extraordinary. My question is, even though we know that that's your ambition, if we were to look at your actions. Are you playing to win or are you playing to not lose? What I'm hearing Cal say is we tell ourselves the story based out of fear and scarcity that I have to do all these other things when the truth is, okay, sure, you do. And it can wait until you get into your time block and you do one thing. You can do both.
3: What happens is when you have that mindset is that suddenly all the everything else gets more controllable because three things happen. First of all, as you know, people in the community know, you start to take things off your plate that really didn't have to be there, right? So once you have that mindset that the, the shallow stuff is not that important, that's not what's going to move the needle, suddenly you realize not all is as important as you need. Two, you get a little bit worse at some of it and realize nothing bad happens, that we hold ourselves to too high of standards. Actually, if we don't respond to an email in 20 minutes, our our company will still run, (laughs) we'll still keep our job. And three, it forces you to be much more efficient about the same things. And there's a huge difference between I'm scrambling the last two hours of the day that I have left to to sort of get on top of my inbox and some of these tasks. And I'm just here in an eight hour day, just sort of going back and forth between my inbox and other things and casually taking care of things. You can get that same amount of work done off in that two hour block once you know to
1: confine it and sort of get it out of your way.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I'm imagining the journey to becoming a person who can do deep work. I'm imagining when you go into those time blocks and you are focusing, you are getting into a deep work state. You're saying no to all that other stuff. The fear of chaos starts to seep in. It's all those loose ends that you have a habit of dealing with and applying urgency to them, even though they're not really urgent, it's artificial. And those loose ends start to pile up. When you see people go on this journey how are they dealing with that fear of chaos? The, the easiest thing to do
3: to get around that is to just be very structured about how you schedule your time for deep work. So you will be overwhelmed by the chaos if you try to do this in an ad hoc fashion. You just say, you know, I'm gonna I'm just gonna try to be deep now, and I'm, I, I don't want to be distracted right now, and it's sort of an open ended type thing that you sort of feel in the mood to do. You will be overwhelmed. That's not going to succeed almost to a person. People who are very successful with deep work have very specific scheduling philosophies that says, this is when I do deep work, this is where I do deep work, this is exactly how long I do the deep work. And once they can trust those scheduling philosophies, then it's it's, it's much easier to put the rest of the world aside because you know, at this point, the world's going to come back in, that I'm just going through this very well-defined block of deep work, after which the rest of the world's going to come back in, and it's not
2: quite so scary. Share your thoughts for the people who, when they're here, you say that they're thinking to themselves, but I, I can't go do that because my boss expects me to be available or I'm in an administrative capacity. It's my job to support these people. I need to be able to reply to my customers. Won't they get mad? What do you have to say yeah. to those people? Well, first
3: of all, it really depends on what your position is, but there's a a couple things I can suggest. One tactic that has been very successful for my readers, I've been hearing after the book came out, is having a conversation with your boss, whoever it is who directly supervises you, where you say, this is what deep work is, this is what shallow work is, both are important, what should my target ratio be for a typical week? Mm. actually have this conversation. Let's see, if I add up all the hours in in my work week and I I categorize them as either deep work or shallow work, what should my target ratio of deep work to shallow work hours be for my particular position, for the type of value, for the type of work I do? What should that be? And this answer is going to be very different if you're, say, a a computer developer. It might be a very high ratio of deep to shallow work because writing 10x code matters. If you're an administrator or administrative assistant, for example, it's really going to be flipped so actually you know most of the time needs to be sort of responding and not deep concentration but helping to connect people to the resources they need and so on but whatever it is you 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 work with your boss or supervisor to get an answer that makes sense for your job then you measure and you keep coming back and say okay here's where i am and if you're falling short then you have this very productive positive conversation well what can we do to make sure that we hit this target that we mutually agreed on and the feedback i've been getting is people who are saying I would have sworn to you that the culture of connectivity in my company is never going to change. And there's just no way that anyone is ever going to be able to be off Slack for more than five minutes or be away from email for more than three minutes. There's just no way that'll ever happen. They do this exercise. One week later, massive changes in the, the culture of the company. So have this conversation. It's a positive conversation. It's not talking about what's wrong. It's talking about how you can be Better and more valuable, and it can induce many more changes than you think. These cultures are not as uh, entrenched or well justified as people assume they are.
2: What we have discovered is that, um, and my question for you, if that is is that is the belief that you are holding, is that a belief that is founded in fact? Meaning, your boss, the culture, point blank said you need to do this, or are you making assumptions? Is it a story that you are telling yourself that seems very real, and you haven't validated it? We were speaking um, at a Fortune 500 company, and the concept of not responding to email right away came up. And this person, very senior, said, if I get an email from the CEO, like, I need to respond immediately. And the senior VP in the room looked at them and said, do you think when I send you an email, I'm sitting at my desk, clicking send and receive, waiting for your reply? Where is it? Yeah. The answer is no. Half the time, I'm just clearing the decks. They don't necessarily expect you to be there and to, boom respond immediately. This is about actually having a conversation with with a number of human beings instead of having a conversation with yourself. My question and my challenge for you is whatever limiting belief you are having right now when it comes to implementing this, ask yourself the question, is this based on fact or is this something that I'm telling myself that I have yet to validate? And what's the one thing you can do to actually have the conversation?
3: So that conversation is very useful. The second thing I would say that I've seen be very effective especially when people maybe run their own company or it's a small business, is if you don't like the communication culture, this is what our clients are always on Slack, I'm always answering the phone, replace it with a better protocol. And this is another this is another limiting belief that people assume that I, I call it the hyperactive hive mind approach to business, which is an ongoing, unstructured conversation that just unfolds throughout the day is the only way to run a knowledge business in the digital age, that is a limiting belief. There's all sorts of different types of communication protocols you could use instead. So just because you happen to have a protocol where your clients just email you when they need something and, and you have to email them back and that's always happening, doesn't mean that that's the only way that you could interact with your clients. And I found companies, for example, who have signed communication contracts with their clients that structure very clearly This is when and how we communicate. Here's the updates we guarantee to give you. Here's what you can expect in terms of responsiveness. Clients are 100% happy with it. They don't need constant access, but they do need clarity, right? So you you can have the the deep the shallow work ratio conversation with your boss. You can also say, well, what communication protocol can I replace? The protocols we implicitly already have uh, working here in my life and my company, what can I replace them with that would work better? You don't have to tolerate the way that you just happen to do things.
2: I will always remember the day Jay Papazan was standing at his computer in his inbox and he said, I refuse to train the world that I am responsive to this channel. My question for you is how are you training the world? Are you training them that you are there at a moment's notice? And what would that training need to look like for you to free up the time for you to achieve extraordinary results in your life? Cal, what does that look like for you? I mean, what are some practical examples of actually looking at a situation where you're like, okay, communication is everywhere. I'm now going to bring some focus and intention behind it.
3: Well, as an author, for example, there's this belief out there that more communication, more accessibility is better, right? That's key. You're not going to, especially as a nonfiction writer, you're not going to sell more books unless you're very accessible and very visible. So contact me, it should be everywhere. You should be everywhere on social media. You know, At some point, I made the decision that that wasn't compatible with the sort of deep work on new books and deep work on my job and on my family. And so I, I'm not on social media, but also when it comes to how people can contact me. Obviously, I don't want to be completely cut off from the world. But what I realized was I didn't have to have a general purpose email address. As an author, I didn't have to have you know, Cal at CalNewport.com and just say, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message. Instead, what I put into place is multiple different channels, each for its own specific purpose. So if you have, say, a speaking request, okay, here's my speaking agent, you can talk here. If you have a question about publicity, you can talk here. If you want to send me links or studies I should know about, which I love receiving from my readers, here's an address just for that, but let me set the expectation. I will look at these, but I usually can't send the response if you, and down the list. So here's the different channels for how you can communicate with me and what to expect in terms of response. Authors think that this is going to annoy their readers, but it's just like that example you're talking about, the Fortune 500 company. People don't really care. They're not really desperate to hear your response. They just like clarity. Clarity is much better than accessibility is what I found. And Mm -hmm. so Because I set these channels, I get a fraction of the incoming communication I used to get. Because I'm incredibly clear on my description of these channels about when you should expect a response and how long it would take, the stress I have of various inboxes being full is much lower because it's got rid of the social expectation that I'm supposed to be answering these things. And I'm still getting... The types of things that are valuable to me as an author, I mean, I'm still getting it. I'm still getting those advantages. I'm still hearing from my readers. I'm still getting case studies. I'm still getting interesting links and and interesting opportunities coming my way. But I've taken back control over those communication protocols into something that that makes more sense for me.
2: And when you implemented that, did the earth stop spinning?
3: (laughs) No one cared. (laughs) basically no one cared. Yeah. No one came to my house. No one sent hate mail. Typically here's my observation. People don't care about you as much as you imagine people care about you.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: At least when it comes to your habits online.
2: Let's talk about, um, shifting focus back to that person who has never tried to do deep work. I, I've heard you say that this is not just something you sit down and you just knock it out of the park. This is a skill. This is a muscle, if you will. It needs to be developed. You got to do the reps. Uh, walk us through how we can get started. What, what's a reasonable expectation? How we start small and scale it over time.
3: Yeah. Well, I, a useful analogy when you're thinking about training deep work is fitness. So let's say you were training for a triathlon. This is actually a very useful analogy. Because if you're training for a triathlon or something like this, there's two different types of training routines you're going to do. There's the, the sort of the active training, the runs, the swims, the weightlifting sessions that are specifically meant to make you better at running triathlons. And then there's the general health and fitness type things you do. So you stop smoking, you're, you're not going to eat junk food, you're going to try to get more sleep, right? You need to be generally healthy if you're going to have a chance of doing well in the athletic competition. It's the same thing I've sort of found through my research and working with readers. It's the same thing for training your ability to concentrate intensely. There's the active training you can do, which is training that is specifically stretching your ability to concentrate, how deep you can focus and how long you can focus. Then there's the general cognitive fitness, the things you can do in your life to make sure that your mind in general is is fit and healthy and capable of sustaining things like deep concentration so there's a lot of examples in each i'll give you one example from each category just to give you a sense of the type of things that matter so on the the active fitness side a, a particular tactic i've always liked is uh productive meditation i call it and in productive meditation what you do is you take a professional problem and you go for a walk i don't know why it needs to be walking but it does sitting still doesn't work and a car doesn't work you need to be walking
2: doing so deadlifts be,
3: and pull-ups like i tried the other day did not work Mm-hmm. does not work. Yeah, exactly. Doing deadlifts and full ups Yeah. does not work. <laughs> Jogging maybe, but only if you're in really good shape. And I found this too because I'm, I'm <laughs> not in great cardiovascular shape. <laughs> it's the same what thing. If you're
2: walking through the mall?
1: Uh,
3: g- 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 yes, but you might fall into okay, the fountain. No. <laughs> okay, no. Uh, but okay, so here's, here's the trick though. So you, you go for a walk. You have a professional problem. You just try to make progress on that problem only in your mind. Okay. And then just like in mindfulness meditation, if you notice your attention is wandering from the problem, which it hundred percent will, you notice that and just bring your attention back to the problem. And then it'll wander off again and start thinking about emails you need to answer. You notice that you bring it back to the problem. I'm going to keep it in my head. This is like pull-ups for your brain. It's, it's crazy how effective it is. It's incredibly difficult at first. You do this for three weeks. You're going to find by week four that you're able to hold ideas in your head manipulate them in your head, make progress on them in your head for an hour. I mean, you're just going to amaze yourself like, oh, my God, I can actually keep my attention focused. Fantastic, active training. On the cognitive fitness side, a a very important tactic, I think, is having more boredom specifically engineered into your life. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is more times where you are craving novel stimuli, you feel bored, and you just remain bored. No phone, no glancing at the computer screen. Like I'm just, I'm in line at the bank. I'm going to be in line at the bank. I'm going to be bored. What's the payoff of that? So the payoff is not that boredom is good or there's some some moral, you know, uh, advantage to, to being bored. It's what you're actually doing is helping your brain break the Pavlovian connection between boredom means stimuli. Boredom means stimuli. So if your brain has been trained, as soon as I feel bored, the phone comes out, and I get a quick hit. Yeah, that It's a Pavlovian connection. It becomes incredibly strong. So then when you sit down in your ascetic cave to do your deep, deep thinking, your brain's going to say, wait, I'm bored. Where's the novel stimuli? And if it has that association, it's not going to tolerate depth. And so the best way to break that is just practice being bored. If sometimes you get stimuli, sometimes you don't, your brain will get comfortable with the idea of, Okay. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. And when you do deep work, it'll be much more comfortable.
2: I, I remember after we chatted on the phone and you, you shared that idea with me, I, I start, tried doing it first was standing in line at the grocery store. And the person in front of me was moving like a box of baby snails, which drove me insane. And I found myself whipping my phone out, checking my email, swiping down, going into an email and realizing it was a bomb. And yeah, now it's a great time to respond to somebody else's priorities. Uh-uh. I just got bored in a second. and I needed that stimulus. And the second was when I was and this is, it's hard to share, but I, I share it because I think it it's, it matters. I was giving my kids a bath. Like they're my purpose in life to be there for them. And th- that moment that I got bored, I found myself reaching for my phone and it was like, a, what are you doing? Look at, look at the opportunity cost of this. It can be huge at times, but you realize when you become aware of it, how much we are just like. Board, stimulus, board, stimulus, board, stimulus. It's everywhere. What's a reasonable expectation? Because we we really preach thinking big in terms of your vision, being the type of person who practices this all the time. You strengthen your concentration. You're acknowledging the boredom. You're embracing it. And how can you now go really, really small? What is that little domino that they can knock down to get started in either one of those? Well, when it comes to deep work, I
3: mean I, I think the the domino is you do it on a regular basis. It almost doesn't matter what it is at first that you're putting that attention on. Just this idea that unbroken concentration. Unbroken concentration is something that plays a regular role in your life, just like it could be very useful that exercise plays a very regular role in your, in your life, can completely change the way you think about it. So like once you have the jogging habit, you start to think of yourself as I care about being healthy. I'm the type of person who does things to make myself more healthy. Once you have a little bit of deep work, regularly protected and respected. You start to think of yourself as someone who takes your brain seriously and who takes cognitive health seriously and who wants to produce deep, valuable things using your brain. And you take that seriously and you're ready
2: to make actual changes to support it. We didn't realize this at the beginning, but when we started working with people in the Living Your One Thing membership, one of the most important things you can establish is momentum. It doesn't matter, like you said, Cal, how much you are doing. It's the fact that it's consistent and you get a win Every day. I don't care if that win is you take one breath and you're trying to meditate. It's how small can you go so you can get a win so that if you keep knocking that domino down, like we showed in the graphic, over time, boom, the hockey stick growth comes. I think people often just set the bar too high and they keep coming in under it. They feel like a failure and they'll only allow themselves to feel like a failure for so long before they rewrite the rules of the game so they no longer have to feel like a failure. What's the biggest mistake that people make? getting started? I, I would probably say the biggest
3: is the the mistake we talked about before, which is assuming you're great at deep work, but you just have been lazy about making time for it. And so this, this seems to be where we're people get really tripped up is they're like, okay, I I did it. I put aside the time. It was terrible. (laughs) It was terrible. I felt terrible. Nothing got done. I'm not a deep work person. So so they're not having humility about the difficulty of developing the skill. The second is people get too gung ho and it's, you know, Hey, I'm going to do, you know, Two days at the office and three days at the monastery. And then, I mean, you completely change my life or whatever. And it lasts, you know, one day before, well, I have to kind of do this meeting. I have to do this type of call. And then then
2: the whole habit falls apart. Marissa asked a great question with lots of enthusiasm. How can we impart this ethos in our children?
3: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's something I think about. I have two young kids, and they're they're young enough now that it's not relevant, but it's going to be soon. How old are they? Uh, four and two. Uh,
2: it's mine too. Oh,
3: there you go. So, as you know, they, yeah, yeah. they're they're not models of, of of deep long concentration. I would say at this point, <laughs> <laughs> I I rarely find them at the whiteboard for for two or three hours, but but. Uh, <laughs> soon, right? <laughs> uh, I, I do think it's a good question. I think it's a very, I think it's a very important question. I, I mean, I think there's, there's two things that are relevant. One is, I think, actually talking about and modeling unbroken concentration as a, a, not only a tier one skill, but at the core of, of sort of what makes us human and what allows us to create and appreciate. Uh, you know, kids pick this up. And if they pick up from you, this is a really important activity full, intense concentration. I respect it in people when they do it. It's at the core of a flourishing life. They will get that lesson. Two is the more complicated issue of, for example, the devices in kids' lives. And this is a hard question that I don't have an answer for, but one thing I will say is my research on this topic is showing that we're probably gonna see a shift in the next maybe three or four years in the way we think about children and devices like smartphones. There's, there's uh, research that's coming out that is, is really alarming and is really moving past just hype. And so, my, 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 my coda to Marissa is I wouldn't be surprised if in two or three years we see a shift in our culture where, for example, we think the idea of a 15 year old having a smartphone will shift from, well, of course, that's kids these days, to, well, of course not. Uh, their brains aren't ready to handle the potential sort of addictiveness of it. So, uh, so I think technologically, there are going to be some, some major shifts in our culture coming on the, the sort of help protect this capacity for depth, uh,
2: in our youth. Interesting. Um, question from Adam, our research or at least what Gary and Jay would advocate is that you, you do your most important work in the morning when you have the most willpower, you got your discipline, get it done first. When you're doing deep work, have you found a certain point in time in the day that's best for you or, and for your readers? Uh, I also do it in the morning. Morning is
3: pretty popular, but not universal. Uh, nighttime is typically people without kids, <laughs> uh, but actually late night is another really common one. You see this a lot among writers and scientists. Almost no one finds uh, afternoon as a particularly good time for deep work. So yeah, morning is pretty common, but not universal.
2: Interesting. And, and great question, Adam. I thought I wasn't going to go there, but that was great. You got anything interesting over there? Is
0: he planning on writing another
2: book? Are you planning on writing another book? Yes, I'm always writing books. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, I, yes, I'm very interested
3: right now. I, I just did a, um, a signed a new book contract. I'm working on a book on digital minimalism, which is a, a sort of philosophy, an aggressive philosophy for how to manage the technology in your
2: life. We should do a, a separate interview with him for yeah. living your one thing, people.
3: Yeah.
2: We'll circle back with you.
3: When you start productive meditation, how much time do you recommend starting?
2: Ah, so for somebody who wants to start doing productive meditation, how much time should they realistically block off and, and so they can start biting it off little bits?
3: If you have... Uh, very little practice with concentration. So you don't do it. You haven't done a lot for your work. You're not, for example, like a musician or someone who has to regularly do practice. 20 minutes seems to be the magic number mm-hmm. for productive meditation, but also for any of these exercises. So you can also do, I talk about in the book, interval training, where you, you take an amount of time, you have a, a stopwatch, and I'm going to concentrate intensely for this amount of time. And if I glance at a screen, you know, at an inbox or anything, I have to cancel it. And it doesn't count. Uh, for that type of exercise, 20 minutes is also the right place to start. And then I usually recommend incrementing by 10 minutes at a time. Once you're comfortable with the duration, you can do it for a couple of weeks with no problem. Add 10 minutes. That's about the pace at which the brain seems to to grow in the capacity.
2: Sherry, my experience um, developing a mindfulness habit was something that was very important to me over the last few years. And when I first started trying to meditate, even one breath was hard because it's like the mind just going everywhere. I would just ask you, what is the amount you can do? How do you start really small and build that momentum? Because it's more important that you get a series of wins under your belt than that you try to hit a, an unrealistic bar to begin with. So this is going to be unique for every single person. Start somewhere that you can do it and see how it goes.
1: Next one.
2: I'm in an open workspace with noisy staff. Oh, yeah. It's the best way to avoid distractions. Did you, folks, if you didn't hear it, um, the question, who's it from?
3: Uh,
2: Hamid. Hamid asks if he's in, a, he's in a noisy area, noisy staff, how do you do deep work?
3: Yeah. I used to joke, get another job. <laughs> but almost certainly these days they'll also have an open office so, so you, it's it's hard to get away from i mean th- by the way that's a trend i think that there's already i'm starting to see shifts in in thinking about that i mean i think we're at peak open office hype and we're gonna start seeing a, a retrenchment from that uh there, there's revolts happening in important places
2: and all-time peaks in foosball skills
3: yeah, people are really good at, yeah, foosball. And also noise-canceling headphone sales are great. So if you, if you uh, uh, but I mean, the, the, the two answers are, I mean, obviously people are, are using noise-canceling often with white or brown noise being played very loudly in the ears. Second of all, people in open office environments, when possible, will establish, negotiate to establish off-site locations for their deep work. So uh, yeah. it's very common for people to come in maybe at 10 a.m. so they can do the first two hours doing their deep work.
2: Yeah, and I'm actually Hamid, I mean, I'm looking for you. Um if you go um the One Thing podcast episode 70 uh is an example of a guy, Ramon Segal business owner, fan of the book, how he started shifting the the culture of his company where they actually have they call them um zone times where that just company-wide. This is the time that you, your time block to do your one thing. This is your time for deep work. It's not the time to be disturbing other people. I I think it's it comes back to communication. What's that lead domino? What's that one conversation you're not having that if you had it might actually make this a cultural thing? I find it hard to go into deep work when I'm tired. What do you do in this case? Do you try to get through it or do you do it at a later time? So if if someone's struggling with getting into deep work when they're tired, what do you do? Do you try to muscle through it or do you just pick another time?
3: Uh, it's, it's case by case. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong about saying I'm exhausted. I'm sick. I didn't get a lot of sleep. I've, I've done too much. This deep work session is not going to be productive. I think it's fine not to do it. And again, the analogy is fitness. I mean, if you're, you're sick or, you know, I remember this back when I used to row crew in college is if you showed up for the practice and you had a bit of a cold, the coach was go home, right? You're going to do more harm than good. So there's, there's nothing wrong with I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm not going to do it. Now, if that's all the time, then there's an issue there either with you where or when you're scheduling deep work or maybe what else is going on in your life. So there might be some bigger questions there to answer.
2: Or maybe consult your local physician. Yes. Yeah. How do you benchmark and track if the deep work you're doing is actually yielding results?
3: Right. Well, the the the, the lead measure you measure is just time doing deep work. And then the, that's what you want to measure and try to be optimizing for in the, in the, in the short term. Long term, you'll see the results you'll see the results. In any sort of knowledge work type location, when you're applying very deep concentration, it really is like a superpower because you're going to notice that you pick things up much faster, you produce things at much uh, higher level of quality, and you produce things in less time. The the number I hear, just to emphasize, because I As an aside, oftentimes people will think about deep work in terms of it would be nice to be a little bit less distracted or maybe a little bit more focused. And and something I want to emphasize is that the people who take this seriously are getting multipliers more productivity. I mean, factor of two, factor of three, more production. It's why the economists called deep work the killer app of the knowledge economy. It's why Eric Barker called it a superpower for the knowledge work. I I hear things like two times, three times improvement, these type of numbers all the time. So, so you will know when your deep work skill gets up to a big level, what you're going to notice is that you're producing it in a way that makes other people think, you know, how in the world is she doing that? That's the reaction you should be looking for.
2: Who asked that question? We're really, we honor you guys for being here and consuming content. We're huge on implementation. The number one implementation tool that we use, the 411, which if you go to the one thing.com with the number one in the URL and you click on free stuff, um, you can download the 411. One of the biggest measures we've seen is you start to notice the things that you wrote down for the week that really matter. You actually start crossing them off. It's, it's a very visual representation of, wow, I said that these were the handful of activities and oh my goodness, I actually didn't get any of them done. What was I doing with my time? It's very visual. And we've seen people who have been living this in our membership, they're taking back 24 to 32 hours a month. It's just, it, it will be very evident for you. Who answers all, you, you mentioned Cal talking about establishing those emails based on what the purpose was. Who's in there checking them?
3: Some are other people and some are me. So, I mean, some, some will be like my speaking agent or my publicist or my literary agent. And then, and then, but I have several channels to come to me, but they come in different addresses and they come in each with their own, I, in the book, we call them cinder filters, where you let the cinder filter both themselves and their expectations by giving them the information they need to know, here's what to expect. And so uh, a lot of those I'm doing, a lot of those I have other people doing.
2: Cool. And how how much time a week would you say you actually invest in your inbox, in any inbox? Well, I mean, the only inbox I have is is I guess a email inboxes. I probably
3: spend uh, you know an hour on that, not every day, but like maybe
2: three out of the five weekdays. I mean, it, it seems sounds reasonable. And then I think about how much time people actually do, how many times they check their email a day and how many d- times they're coming out of a deep work state and just, yeah no it's, it's a catastrophe <laughs> it's a disaster what are your working hours like now cal now that you have a habit of deep work well i do 8 30 to 5
3: 30 or uh, and actually i work backwards from that goal so this is when i'm working there there's some exceptions i write a, i write my weekly blog post in the evening one day a week and when i'm working on a book i often will do some weekend uh weekend morning writing as well but but otherwise it's, it's 8.30 to 5.30. I work backwards from that. So I say, what do I have to do to make my work fit into 8.30 to 5.30? So I have the goalpost set up first. And that those hard stakes in the ground, actually, I call it, this is called fixed schedule productivity. You fix the schedule and then say, what do I have to do to actually make my work fit in there? It can be a phenomenally useful tool because it's, it, it pushes you to make big decisions, A, just in the shape of your career, what you do, how you do it, what people's expectations are. It leads to big shifts in what you say yes to or what you don't say yes to. It leads to big shifts in your habits and your productivity. I'm a huge proponent of it. But I do 830 to 530. My days start with deep work. The only question each day is how long is it going to go today? So I just have that habit ingrained that at 830, I start deep work. There's no screens or anything. No inbox will be seen till after that's over. Some days that'll go a long time. Other days, I might not go that long, and then I have to go do other things, but that's something I always know is going
2: to happen. So you have these, these time blocks in the morning to do your deep work. What have been some of the biggest things that pop up and try to violate that time block for you?
3: The key thing for me is making sure that uh, I don't see any communication channels until after that block is over. You, you can't glance and say, "And now, maybe there's an issue. Let me make sure I'll get back to it later. Uh, that destroys the whole thing. So, so just getting rolling, to me, makes a big difference. Otherwise, I'm just generally very hard. To, I'm, kind of, I'm pretty hard to reach. So it's... It, by design, it's easier to stay in these blocks. I mean, there's no social media for me to check. I, you know, I, I'm terrible on, my family will tell you this, I'm terrible on text messages. I mean, I just, I don't have this habit of like I have my phone with me and if a text message comes in, I'm going to answer it. And, and I'll probably, I'm probably not going to respond to your text message. I'm just not going to see it come in and it'll get buried by something else. And so by being purposefully hard to reach, engineered that way, it's much easier for me just to go into a deeper block, do my ritual, get started, start thinking it's just what i expect to do each morning
2: Mm. and and i actually noticed that just even in our, our correspondence where um a text did not necessarily come back immediately an email did not necessarily come back immediately and you know what the world continued to spin like we get it you're busy i think what you have said over and over cal which is brilliant is it's it's the expectations it's that clarity up front and and if you can do that everything's good What do you think about the flipped classroom model relative to deep work? And I don't even know what that means.
3: Right. Well, the the flipped classroom model is where you would actually have the students teach themselves the material on their own. And then when they come into the classroom, it's more about let's discuss and get questions answered, try to Mm -hmm. fill in the gaps or, or where we struggled. It's one of these interesting models on paper. It sort of of makes sense on paper, but it's often quite ineffective when when you actually try to put this into effect in a lot of environments. And I think this is in part because we are getting worse at the type of deep work required to actually succeed with that model. Uh, I think young people, people younger than me, the generation coming up behind me is worse at concentration deep work than my generation, which was probably worse than generations that came before. And so to me, the idea that the flipped classroom, often people struggle when they actually put it into, what happens is people put it into effect and often the students just don't do the work or kind of do the work and you end up having to teach it all from scratch anyways. And so right now I think the lecture model is very successful because it's a sort of enforced depth period for a lot of students like, well, all I have to do is get to this classroom and then I'm stuck in this room having to listen to and try to understand this material. And if you just put me in a room with a textbook, I almost certainly wouldn't sustain my, my concentration. So it's it's sort of using the cultural and social pressures of I'm in this room and the professor is looking at me to try to force more depth out of people.
2: Love it. Love it. Um, saw a question from Martina about any nutritional tips on keeping your brain healthy and focused.
3: Uh, you, you know, eating well, matters. I'm not, I'm not a nutrition expert, but I do know if, if I'm, if I'm eating like processed food, my energy drops, your energy drops, deep work's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. In general, I think about deep concentration is an incredibly high energy consuming activity, just like some sort of physical activities. And so you really do need to be thinking about it in the context of what is my energy level to be, to be doing this.
2: Mm. Hmm. I saw something from Doreen. I need the information in my inbox in order to do my work, so I can't avoid it even during a focused time. How do I get around this?
3: Yeah. So, so how do you, I mean, it depends on the very specific type of work, but, you know, a a couple things that seem relevant is, is one is people uh, have a habit of having sort of an informal ongoing conversation surrounding a project unfold in back and forth emails. People have a lot of success explicitly getting particular projects out of the inbox. So it's, okay, you and I are gonna work on this. One way we could do it is just sort of keep this asynchronous ad hoc conversation going back and forth with messages, but then you have to continually be checking the messages to keep the conversation going. In a lot of circumstances, you can replace that protocol with different a different protocol or a different process. We say, okay, you know, Jeff, you and I are gonna be working on this project together. Let's put a little bit of thought of it up front. How are we going to do this? Like, who needs what from whom? When are we going to deliver this? When are we are going to get together? You're going to put this information here by this point. We're going to check in on this point. You spend a little bit of time up front and, and put into place an alternative process that minimizes the amount of informal, unstructured, by which I mean not at fixed times, communication that has to go back and forth. So whether you know it or not, you're executing a specific communication or work protocol. And there's other protocols you could potentially swap in.
2: Yeah. My, my question for you, Doreen, is I, I get that there are certainly roles where you got to be in the inbox. It's got to be a regular thing. The question is, does it have to be a constant thing? Is there ever a point in time where there is something that you you don't actually physically have to be staring at the inbox to get something done? Does the inbox physically have to be open in that moment? Do you have to be able to hear the ding when the email comes in? Because then it starts to occupy the mind share. Can you even for those little slivers of time, even if it's for one or two minutes, can that be an undisturbed focused time? And it may seem really small. The payoff is huge though. So Raphael asked, what do you do to convince those that barrier to deep work? How do you enlist the support of other people in you doing deep work?
3: Right so I mean, this is where I think the positive conversation is very useful so so talking about this, what deep work is is what shallow work is, both are important. This is the role deep work plays in my job, just like in another type of job where there might be some particular activity that was key to it, like this is when I oil this expensive piece of factory equipment that we use for putting cars on the door, people understand like, oh, it's very important that Cal oils the door machine you know twice a day because getting the doors on fast is a huge part of what we need to do on the assembly line. You think about deep work in the same way. It's something that you discuss with people in a positive way. Hey, this is one of the things I do because we're in knowledge work and I got to create value out of my brain. And I want to do that at a high level. And deep work is the activity that extracts the most possible value from my brain. It's one of the things I do. Here's how I, I, I put it into my working life. Here's how I protect it. Most people completely understand that. By contrast, if you instead try to focus on the negative things that makes deep work hard my experience is these conversations don't go well so if instead you focus on you email me too much, you bother you these meetings are stupid, why do, you, why do you schedule all these meetings, like, this is what you're doing wrong, this is, I'm in this situation all the time, I give a lot of speeches, and after the speeches, there's often these sort of uh, roundtable discussions, and there's often the bosses there, and the other people in the roundtable are telling the boss, like, here's what you're doing wrong, just making it hard for me to do deep work, doesn't work, it is not a very successful way to have this conversation or to reduce the barrier that people are going to put up to deep work come at it from the positive angle. Here is a specific cognitive activity that's going to produce lots of value for me or for this organization. Here are the ways I'm trying to uh, promote this activity and do it at a high level. This is a good, positive thing for me and the organization. People will get behind well-informed, positive changes.
2: Yeah, I think that is fantastic, fantastic counsel. Well, Cal, thank you very much. Where can people learn more about you?
3: I have a website, calnewport.com. In addition to finding out the books, I blog. Once a week, I blog. And if you're interested in these type of ideas, you can dive deep into that archive. It goes back over a decade. And you can learn a lot about my thinking
2: on these topics. That's awesome. And folks, um, if you want to get a copy of Deep Work on Audible, uh, if you go to audible.com slash one thing. Uh, we have a partnership with Audible where if you are not currently an Audible customer, you can get a um 30-day free trial. It'll include a free audiobook so Deep Work could be um free for you. And if you are an Audible customer like myself, well worth the credit. So you can go there and um One final thing we will say with everything that has been going on lately with the hurricanes, um, the disaster relief, we really want to leverage our platform, our influence as as a way to do good. Later this month, we are opening the doors again for the Living Your One Thing membership, which we've referenced several times in here. It helps people take back 24 to 32 hours a month. If you do join us this next round during that enrollment, we're taking 100% of the net proceeds of your first month's membership to directly benefit those that have been affected. You can go to the One Thing dot com slash membership to get on the wait list and that's with the number one in the url so the one thing dot com slash membership so yeah we we really appreciate you cal it folks we do this every month the one thing dot com slash webinar shows all the past webinars we have done and um you can figure out more about what's happening in in the upcoming ones as well so really appreciate you cal thank you very much is there anything we can do to support you outside of just going to your site yeah, you know, think deeply. <laughs> Nothing makes me happier than seeing that. Hashtag think deeply. There you go. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you. Have an awesome rest of the week. And uh, thank you for all the value you brought today. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Well, there you have it our
0: conversation with Cal Newport, a part of our One Thing webinar series. If you would like to see our upcoming webinars, please go to the onething.com slash webinar and you can see what we have coming up. You can also see all of our past webinars there. We're gonna ask you the question, folks. We sound like a record on repeat and that's for a reason. We love that you are consuming the content and we know your greatest results will come when you back it with action. What's the one thing you learned from this episode that you can do such that by doing it would make a massive impact in terms of how you are investing your time. I love the idea of two things that really stuck out to me. First and foremost is just the walking meditation, the idea of just walking and bringing your focus to a problem in your business. And every time your focus wavers, you bring it back to the problem. I've had so many great ideas taking action on this. I really wanna underscore that for all of you. The other is what he talked about in terms of every time we get bored, that need for stimulus. Since this conversation, it just has been front and center every single time. My wife and I are watching TV and I have to pause the show because she needs to go run and take care of the kids or we have to stop and do something. How that inclination to just grab your phone to now consciously be able to say no. I'm just going to sit here, I'm just going to be. And in those moments I found so much gratitude for all the things that I had, things that I was unaware of because I wasn't occupying my mind share with things that didn't matter. I was giving myself time to actually just be with myself. Turns out I actually like myself a lot, that's awesome. New best friend, it's amazing. You should try it sometime. What's the one thing you will take action on based on this episode? Folks, if this has helped you, Please share it with somebody, share it with somebody who needs to hear this. And if you want help implementing the ideas of the one thing, go to the one thing.com slash membership. The doors to living your one thing are open currently. They will not be open for long. This is our program where we act as your accountability partner and we help you take back control of 24 to 32 hours a month that you're currently wasting. It's one of the most impactful programs we have. It is ridiculously affordable and ridiculously powerful. Go to theonething.com slash membership. Thank you for listening. We love you guys. We care about you guys. And we look forward to being with you in the next episode.